One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode uh, of the More Than Just Code podcast. This is our 30th episode and I'm Tim I'm in Toronto, Ontario and I'm joined by Aaron Bain, Whitby, Ontario. Hi there. And I'm also joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And once again, we have Mark Rubin joining us from LA, or Los Angeles, California. Hey everybody. What's this um, programmer, developer, engineer FU? Uh, I didn't put that out. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I didn't Jaime? put my name on it. That was actually uh, mine. That was one I had uh, in my list of podcast topics to keep around if we ever had a slow time. Right. Um, like, I mean, it's really computer programmer versus software developer versus software engineer. And we, yeah. we mm. broached that topic a little bit, of, at least the engineering side from like a Canadian perspective. Like there's yeah, actual right. legal requirements for software engineer. Well, for the term engineer, yeah. Mm. I don't think yeah. there's no such thing as a software engineer in a, in a Canadian context, anyway. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, that's what, what Greg was saying last year. You can't, you can't call yourself. I mean, we have a professional engineer association here, and, and you can't call yourself a, an engineer unless you've gone and studied engineering of one one of the disciplines, right? And uh, there's no software engineering discipline. Right. No, I know, but I'm just saying <laughs> well, you, you can't call yourself an exactly, engineer. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Right. There are legal legal repercussions, is what I'm hearing, which yeah. well, do not exist in the United States. Yeah. There are yeah, and front it, end it, engineers, it UX engineer. I mean, anything really? gets engineer tossed to the end of it. Wow. Think of the word, though. Look at the word. <laughs> <laughs> just look at it. Yeah, it's, I know. It's I, the guy yeah, I was going to say who, the engine. <laughs> I was going to say who, who drives the train. Right? <laughs> that word means something. It's got an etymology. Ooh. You can't just lob it around. I mean, it, it, it sure sounds impressive. I love the sound of the word engineer because I have so much respect for them, as I've said. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, just to lob it around like that, I, it cheapens the word. And yes. uh, so I've got a huge sullies it, dirties it, covers mm-hmm. it with filth. So mm-hmm. let's stop using it. Uh, but that's never going to happen, of course, because especially in San Francisco, right? 
I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there was one exception. So we, we didn't have time to broach it the last time. But I do believe mm-hmm. there is one exception where I would feel comfortable calling somebody software engineers. Hit me. Tell me. Yeah. What is it? Well, that would be in something that uses formal methods like you know NASA when they're creating the flight control software for like the space shuttle or something. Ah, like, oh, those yeah. are the, the ones who might potentially be legitimate software engineers. Me, creating apps? Absolutely not. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. follow any, anything even close to formal methods where I can mathematically prove my program correct. Well, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a great uh, comparison. What, what is NASA's methodology or what is the methodology of a large aerospace company that's, that's creating uh, flight control software, for example? You know, the software that runs avionics in a, in a jumbo jet. Um, you know, that, that sort of actual, no kidding, mission critical stuff, mm-hmm. you know, what is the methodology behind that? Um, are the people doing it actually using it, a, a kind of discipline that, that we don't and like here, here's an example. Um, you ever heard of real time operating systems? Yep. Okay. So a real time operating system is supposedly one that is fault tolerant and, you know, can't crash. Um, the one that uh, that BlackBerry bought. Uh, what the hell was that called? Was it QNX or something? QNX. Like that? that was it. Yeah. Uh, which was the basis of their their new BlackBerry phones. And that that operating system is used in all kinds of control uh, systems, like automobiles, for example. The kind of mm-hmm. situations where you don't see the software, like you don't interact with it, but it's mm-hmm. and it can't obviously can't fail. Right. So I wonder if it's a, a similar sort of methodology producing that operating system or the, that type of operating system and that sort of mission critical software in general. You have no idea. And I, I don't either, do you? <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. I have only hints and, and I don't know how outdated it is, but it um, my understanding is that it's it's definitely a much more uh, waterfall kind of methodology, mm. uh, real heavy on requirement specification and everything planned out to the tiniest little detail yeah and heavily code reviewed heavily peer reviewed to the point where um if you create you know 200 lines of code that go into the finalized product a week that is a really good week for you like you were super productive wow Hmm. yeah which explains why these programs tend to take you know five to ten years right versus an app which you could build over a weekend I don't think I'd do well in an environment like that. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. Um, You know, one that would be interesting for my own benefit here is the iTunes uh, test flight beta testing, because that article seems to have information that is counter to my own experience. Are you talking about Jeff Jeff Rames' article? Yeah, and I don't know if it's because I'm doing something wrong or he is incorrect. So it gives a pretty good overview of what the new Apple test flight you know, and how it works as opposed yeah. to how the old Bursley one did. Yeah. Um, pretty clear. Uh, doesn't really answer the question that Tim had about, you know, Hey, you know, I don't need all 25 of my internal testers bugging me with this problem. I'd like to do a smoke test first by yeah, myself, yeah. which I, I mm-hmm. always did with the old test flight until yeah. I expanded it out to everybody else. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. It turns out you can only that. control distribution to external testers. Yes. I had a look at because I, I use I use this service pretty regularly myself. So um, 
I recently went was just posting a new beta uh, the other day and took a look at this because we talked about it last week. And yeah, yeah. it's external testers you control that, but not internal ones. Hmm. Um, so your solution would be to make your internal testers external testers. There you go. Problem yeah. solved. <laughs> um, one of these I tested out myself and I could not verify that this is the case. Um, as you might have guessed, this means you can have a beta version installed at the same time as a live version, even though you never touched the bundle ID. Mm-hmm. Um, I must be doing something wrong because that is absolutely false for my purposes. Oh, so if but, you had an app store, like an actual shipping app from the app store installed, and you tried to install the test flight beta of the same app, it would get overwritten with the beta app? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it tells you like, hey, by the way, this will up, you know, this might overwrite data and stuff that you have. And it's just a hmm. go ahead, cancel. So the only out I can think of is if you click cancel and it doesn't overwrite. I mm. mean, I, I, I don't know. It doesn't give you an option to say, oh yeah, please don't overwrite this, put this somewhere else. Hmm. Yeah, so I don't maybe know I'm just that. missing like a usability kind of thing. Yeah, um, I'll tell you that when I'm in development and I have a test flight beta installed on my phone, and then I go to run a copy from Xcode in development mode, it will mm-hmm. overwrite the test flight beta. Yeah, that makes sense, because it'd be the yeah. same bundle ID. Oh, overwrite the app. Overwrite yeah, the yeah, app, yeah. yeah. And so, Including the data. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. In my case, it's okay, because um, it's all stored in CloudKit, but... Yeah, um, I wouldn't be like I wouldn't be surprised if, if the same thing happened with an App Store version of the same app. Really? I, I, yeah, I don't know about that because um, you know that that sounds odd to me because I, I you know I would think that the data would stay there. It would just replace the the binary data because the directories that are inside the app. Why would they change? Yeah, I, I think what the test flight app is trying to tell you is, you know, don't be surprised if oh, stuff goes away because you might be using a development what? environment instead <laughs> of a production environment is the most yeah. obvious one to me, right? Or maybe there's um, uh, some sort of migration code that is not yet fully baked. And so you might just have data loss. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other one that I'd be interested to get an answer to because it seems completely counter to what I just tried to test, which is you can conduct beta tests of multiple versions at a time. Which that's related explic- to that one. <laughs> seems explicitly false uh, from what I have tried in iTunes Connect, where I had, you know, version A, and then I uploaded version B. Version B turned off version A by default. So I said, oh, okay, maybe it's just trying to be friendly. And I tried to go turn version A back on, and it says, oh, this will stop all testing for version B. Hmm. Which is kind of the opposite of what I wanted and, and was something I was able to do with the old test flight. So right. if I'm doing something wrong, I sure would love to learn. Otherwise, I think this statement is false. Yikes. Mm-hmm. Man, you're coming up against corner cases that I haven't touched yet. Wow. Scary. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, there's, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that I think that, you know, a lot of developers will agree has been lost in, in the transfer of, you know, the, the old test light, which had a bit more flexibility than, than the new process, right? Well, mm-hmm. yeah, but, you know, having said that, the the, um, the freedom in the new test flight is really great. I mean, overall, I think it's a huge win. Oh, yeah, it's... from simply simply from the point of view of being able to just send out to testers and not have to worry about devices. And... Yeah, like, yeah. It, it obviously has problems. Uh, I'd also yeah. love to see it come to the Mac. <laughs> for what it's worth um oh yeah because i've got a mac app that i would love to have the ability to test just as easily as this 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish mm-hmm. Mark was here. Uh, the hockey app does the app. It does the Mac, doesn't it? I believe so. And uh, the old test flight did or didn't? Did not. Did not. Um, Funny you should mention hockey app because we're actually evaluating having um, test flight for our release candidates because, you know, mm-hmm, we can only mm-hmm. ship one and only one app at a time to the app store. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that would be the broadest distribution. And that's why we need the, the real benefits of having the new test flight. And then mm-hmm, probably mm-hmm. doing something like hockey app or some other third party alternative for having multiple builds going at the same time for internal testing of this feature an experimental test over here. Another one that's kind of close, but not ready for release candidate here. Uh, that would be a much smaller group of people. Um, so the, you know, the, the number of devices is less of a concern at that point. Um, huh. and that I'm hoping that that will just hold true for the next three months until WWDC when Apple says, by golly, now we can give you multiple versions at once. And Mac support. Mm. Yep. And and uh, with CloudKit, being able to choose your environment, that would be amazing. <laughs> I would love mm-hmm. that. Because right now, if, with CloudKit, when you ship it to, uh, via test flight, it's always going to target the production environment. You've not no choice about that. Uh, which is not happy times. Alrighty. So, um, at the risk of uh, annoying one of our favorite our listeners, Chris Hawkins, we're going to talk about the event that just passed. I guess now we won't get in trouble because we're not speculating. No, this it. isn't speculation. This is future no. forward-looking stuff. This is important. But we, but we loved your your feedback, Chris. Don't get us wrong. You know, we we did we take the, we take it on the chin, and you know, away we go. I printed it and framed it. It's on, it's on my wall. Okay, good. Is there good. a stout reminder never to talk about upcoming events again? <laughs> <laughs> Or not to just blather on about upcoming events, I believe was the quote. You know, I, um, I, I, I want to defend our, our last episode, actually, because I think it's really good to, to hear what our thoughts were before we found out the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, things like, uh, you know, we said last week, uh, talking about the MacBook that we saw released this week. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think it'll have one port? Oh, I just can't see it. I can't believe it. No, no way. And there it is. And there it is. Port. It's got one port. Um, yeah. That's hilarious, you know? And I was just listening to uh, last week's ATP podcast yeah. uh, where they were doing the exact same thing. They were talking about the event. I've I've seen the event. I know exactly what happened. I mean, they're speculating about it. Uh, yeah. It's 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 hilarious, actually. I really enjoyed it. Oh, you mean so? Yeah, it's funny because I, I also sent you guys a link earlier that uh, Ray Wonder, like, I finally Ding. listened to our episode. Thank you, and because he wanted to hear, you know, Greg on Greg on his uh, his first podcast, and uh, he thought it was funny listening to us speculate. I have to go back and listen to it again to see how wrong we were. But but I mean that's the point. Like you know, like this is we were sort of gathering you know our forces and and, and putting our our uh, respective cards on the table. Yeah, right? but uh, we weren't actually that wrong. And some of the no. some of the most important things we discussed were really um, about uh, what Apple's uh, decisions were, you know, the kind of decisions mm-hmm. they were making. You know, we talked considerably about price, right? And everything yeah. we feared about price, I believe, came true. Oh, and then some. And then some. And then some. <laughs> well, I don't yeah. know if it then some. I mean... People were saying, well, I mean, like the the metal the metal the metal wristband at, yeah. at the you know at, at six hundred dollars, you yeah. know the the millies loop at as only two hundred compared to a, le- a you know leather strap, which is only two hundred dollars. Yeah. you know it's a it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Yeah. yeah, I guess the point being that I think my comments last week about what sort of uh, company Apple is becoming remain mm-hmm. germane despite having happened before that event. 
Right. Uh, right. And so I would just, you know, I would say this week, yeah, I stand by what I said. In fact, uh, my my fear has now been realized, and uh, mm. we're we're going to see down the road whether that you know means anything or not. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had an interesting 24 hours leading up to the event where even though on this very podcast, I'd said I'd go with the sport white, you know, cheapest 349. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of had to change of heart and said, no, I think I will use this year's Apple watch and resell it to something like gazelle next year and use that to help fund next year's, you know, much better watch. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to go with the steel and I really do like the metal links. So I'll go with mm-hmm. that. And I thought about all that as it was like probably, you know, five to $700 and it's a thousand dollars. And <laughs> yeah. I said, you know, I think I can live with the crummy watch for a while. And I decided yeah. to go with the black sport. Yeah. I think that's where I'm aiming to actually. I said last week that I go for the whites or the light colored sport with a blue wristband, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe the, uh, the, the space gray, just like yours, I mean, mm-hmm. looks really nice that, you know, I'll probably change my mind three more times before they come available. Yeah. And I also realized that the pre-orders will take place um, when I'm at NS North and they will be available in the store when I am many, many kilometers away from an Apple store. So I'm very, <laughs> very sad about that. <laughs> well, maybe in, 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 the whole point is in the time between you're going to get to an Apple store at some point to try one on and then put your order in and have it delivered to you. I think I'm probably going to make the pre-order, assuming the best, and then go in and verify and change the pre-order after the fact. All right. All right. Just That's because I, I assume that that probably changes my place in the queue. Yeah. The watch event I thought was really interesting. Um, one of the things that I didn't think would happen was the $50 price difference on the sport watch between the two sizes, um, which was, you know, to my mind, it still remains kind of problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it kind of makes Apple a little weaselly in my mind by by doing that three forty nine introductory price, right? Because uh, this it's an anatomical discussion at this point, largely anyway. I mean, there's a matter of style as well, like depending on how big a thing you want on your wrist, right? But the difference between those two uh, is very minor, but the fifty dollar price difference is not as minor. And if you actually look across the whole product line. And last week we talked about that uh, rumored um, price range that we we saw, which was which was made up by a Mac Rumors forum poster, as it happens. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, my concern about there being just so many prices. Well, that turned out to be exactly true, right? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it, there there really are so many prices, and and it is a little mind boggling. Yeah. Um, the problem is that um, a lot of people are going to want the cheapest thing Apple's going to sell to them for this line of, of products, right? And if I get seen in public with a watch on, they're going to know because, you know, <laughs> I think the, the prices are pretty well understood at least, that I have purchased the cheapest thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but that's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, in Canada, thanks to the incredibly weak Canadian dollar, um, <laughs> I'll have spent almost $600 on this thing that I'm wearing on my wrist, you know? And, you know, so on that other hand, I'm a little embarrassed to be seen with it. 
You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny. It's funny because I was chatting with a bunch of people before we were getting ready to, to sort of join together. I think you did. You join up with somebody else and watch the, the keynote again, Aaron? Or no, watch it by yourself? Yeah, I was by myself. Yeah, I was. With, I was with a group online. We were chatting about it, and and um, one of them actually convinced me that to to be really speculative about whether I would really buy the watch. I mean. Um, you know, cash flow being what it is. I mean, I don't know if I would at this point, you know, um, unless I had some compelling reason to write an app, you know, on day one. Yeah. You know, because for, like you just said, I mean, the entry level for us is $500. That's a lot of money to, to sort of throw out to something that you know you're going to replace in a year, right? Um, interestingly enough, though, and maybe this is another um, business idea for people, I was reading somewhere um, an article that there's companies out there that are going to rent out watches to people to try them out for a couple of days. And then if you like it, you can purchase it. So that may be another angle for, uh, for that. Cause I mean, as developers, you know, you need to be, you, I was also heard today that you have to take your screenshots on the actual device. You can't take them on the simulator. So, uh, if you're building an app for instance, right. Um, so it, it kind of creates a quandary for, for developers who are, you know, maybe indie and, don't have a whole lot of uh, you know funds to throw around. They can't expense it against a you know huge company income or something like that, right? If someone's mm-hmm. seriously considering doing watch development, they they have to get a watch. No, yeah, admittedly. But if you're just if you're, what I'm saying, if you're just speculating and you're you know maybe you just you're should I shouldn't I you know that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, but uh, I actually do want to throw it over to our coach who just come back here because Mark surprised me by after the event by saying by sending me a text saying that now that he's actually seen the watch he would actually consider buying one do you want to yeah jump in you know before mark? the announcement or or rather before the last presentation uh, I, I wasn't really that interested i thought yeah maybe you know maybe we'll see but when mm-hmm. i saw the the uh, apple pay integration and the siri integration i kind of got excited about it especially yeah. especially apple pay because I, I use apple pay as much as i can now um, which is, which mm. is not as much as I'd like, but as much as I can. And it's always a pain to pull it out of your pocket and, and start flashing it around. Um, also, yeah. since I've been traveling a lot, I, I use Passbook with my boarding passes. And uh, and that's always a fumble around with baggage and everything, trying to get on the plane. And if I just had mm. it on the watch and could just kind of, you know, run it under the uh, the scanner, I think that would be great. <laughs> So yeah, you have to take your watch off to go through the scanner too, though, when at the airport. No, you don't. No, no, you can you can have. Well, you have to take it off to go through security, but to get uh, yeah. you know to actually to get through the, the oh, first the point, plane, then to get yeah, on the plane, yeah. you don't you don't need to take yeah. it off. Right, so I'm right. sort of excited about that. I, I don't know if I'll buy the hmm. uh, the ten thousand dollar one. You know, I might go for the seventeen thousand dollar one, but not you know. Anyway, yeah. no, 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 the rose gold, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you know the 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 highest price watch in Canada is twenty two thousand dollars. Wow. And fifty dollars, yeah, the fifty dollars on for the forty-two. Yeah, <laughs> it's nice. So, yeah, yeah. And and there's uh, there's already knockoffs on uh, eBay for fifty bucks too. You could get one of those. Oh really? Yeah. Yep. Cool. Does it run Android or something? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Somehow I don't think it'll work with Apple Pay though. So I do have a question for those who've probably used WatchKit a little bit more than I have, but. Mm-hmm. Um, how big of a difference is there in designing for the 38 versus the 42 millimeter? Well, it does in that your assets, you have to have separate assets for both sizes. Yeah. So, um, yes. you know, a uh, friend of the show, Brian Gillum, who, um, maker of Chronicons, he's created an, an icon set for the watch and he's selling it on his website. Yeah. Yep. And 
that icon set and, and any icon set that you might buy uh, should include 38 and 42 mil sizes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and you have to include those like like you would a, a 2x or 3x image asset. Um, you just bundle them together in the asset library and our catalog, and uh, they get they get used as appropriate. Mm-hmm. So that so there is some difference there. There probably would be some sort of differences in font sizes, I would guess. Um, but that that'd be handled by the SDK natively, right? Because you you're not actually designing to the pixel. Right, right. But since there is a difference there in asset size and and font size at some level, doesn't that impact your information hierarchy, information density, and maybe even some of the icon and and other asset design in that you have to consider it being, you know, pretty much even distribution for both and I think that probably means designing for the smaller one as the baseline and, and seeing if you can get away with some extra things for the slightly larger one, right? Possibly, so being constrained yeah. by the smaller one. Yeah, I, I suspect in real world usage that it probably won't matter very much because because of the way the interface builder works or, you know, the WatchKit APIs work, that you're just basically saying, here's a table, it contains a, pit, a bit of text, and I don't know if the differences between 38 and 42 are going to be sufficient to change your decision-making about how a layout will work between the two sizes, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's, no, it's, not, that much it's not like going size, from no. landscape yeah. to, to portrait on an iPhone, for example. It's not like that at all. It's um, just a subtle difference. And you have very little control over the layout on the watch, right? So everything is really standardized. I don't know if I'm uh, kind of explaining that well, but <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you're basically like saying, you know, here's a table. And so the, the size of the table is pre- preset. You can't change that, right? Uh, you can put elements in the table, but the elements that you put in the table, those are preset. You can't change them. So everything is, is kind of standardized and, and preordained. Um, and so, you know, on the plus side, really, that, that, prevents you from shooting yourself in the foot with decisions that might have repercussions depending on the size of the device. So I think, I think Apple's done that intentionally to obviate that problem. Yeah. I mean, essentially just to explain it, if I can, you know, when you, when you lay out a table or you lay out items on the, on a view, you can either you push them to the left, right, or center them. You can put them in a container object um, with tables. You can either stack them horizontally or vertically the cells that is right. Yeah. Um, and there's that's a bit that's about it. You really can't go in and say this is going to be you know thirty thirty two pixels from the left edge, and it's not like exactly that at all. exactly. Yeah. That's that's yeah. exactly the point. It's more akin to that other platform which we don't like to talk about. Android, you mean? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Sorry, I said the word, <laughs> okay. but uh, yeah, a little bit of a kink to that. Yeah. No, that's not ding worthy. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Um, and you want to talk the two sizes oh. more akin to like the you know the Retina One X Two X kind of thing, where it's the same graphic you just provided in two sizes. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, it's actual the, the physical size of the yeah. image is slightly different. You know, there are right, specs right. here, but I don't know off, offhand what they are. But you know, like it is a s- small difference. Yep. Um, in in terms of like how the watch will do in the market. Um, I found this article that I just read today by De- Ben Thompson at Stratikery, and it 
it addressed so many of the problems that I saw with the watch and the way it was presented at the event. Kevin Lynch came onto the stage. His uh, demonstration showed a lot of different software being used in the watch as you go through your day. Like he, he demonstrated uh, using it as a pass key for uh, door locks at uh, Star Starwood Hotels. Uh, he showed it interfacing with the video camera in his garage and opening his garage door remotely. Uh, showed um, what else? Uh, getting notifications and contacts, uh, dictating into his phone to reply to texts, all kinds of different things. And I think the whole point of that that session was to bring home how the watch can be integrated into your life. But it kind of, you know, it left me a little cold because. A lot of that stuff didn't really feel like that was going to be my life. You know what I mean? So uh, I think a lot of people had this problem too. You know, the, the, the use case for the watch has not yet been fully made. That, right. Um, yeah. Apple talks about it as a, as a timepiece, which is, which is totally bonkers. Like nobody that I know of anyway cares about how accurate a timepiece is uh, or else – I don't know. <laughs> just doesn't just not a big selling point. Um, as a fitness companion and as some some kind of like really wiggy communicator, you know, touchy feely communicator, um, where you can you know tap people. Uh, which, you know, so I would say two out of those three use cases are are really really soft, for want of a better word. Whereas the fitness companion part is only appealing to a niche, people who are into fitness, who are, you know, running, jogging, uh, doing things that don't involve the water, for example. <laughs> it left a lot of people, I think, wondering what the use case of the watch would be for them. And I think that's a problem that Apple's going to have to confront uh, going forward as this as this watch makes its way to the market. We're, for the phone, we, we had a pretty clear understanding that even though the iPhone turned out to be everything but a phone, that phone was the the primary use case that 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 got it into people's hands from the very start. Mm-hmm. The iPad was a little more fuzzy, but we we put it in the context of using it as a as a more informal computing device that we could use on the couch, you know, and it it got into people's heads that way. Whereas the watch again, won't be a watch per se. They're still pushing it that way as if a watch is something that we all need and everybody knows they don't. But mm-hmm. all these other use cases aren't clear yet because the software hasn't been built for it yet. Right, exactly, yeah. So which this takes me to Ben Thompson's article on Stratechery. Stratechery. Gosh, I never know how to say the thing's name. But he he makes a really compelling case for how the watch will find its place in the world. And I think the, the examples that he, ma- he makes are about the future and what what's going to happen because right now our problem is that we're judging the watch based on the present and the the watch doesn't have a place in the present world it has a place in the future world and so what's that going to be like and he uses this internet of things that we're hearing more about lately where all the things around us uh with with microchips and internet connections inside of them become sort of responsive and controllable by your watch right things that we uh, currently would interface a smartphone with become dramatically more convenient when it's your watch that you're interfacing it with. And it seems like a small thing, but being able to lift your wrist and, and having the same functionality as you would on a watch actually does make a significant difference in how you interact with something. So the watch would help you interact with it, but it would also be your identity. 
um, given the the Apple Pay based technology that's part of it, right? Well, and Passbook too, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it being a wearable is really critical to um, to its success because it's going to be so accessible, right? Yeah. So yeah. That, he makes a really strong case for that, and I'll, I'll recommend that you guys read this. But um, just to summarize that, um, and the other thing that Apple does, and uh, he makes the case for why Apple is so focused on the the sort of luxury element of this watch. Apple, I mean, anybody could have made a smartwatch, right? And and Samsung and others on the Android side have done that uh, to varying effect. But, you know, frankly, they're not going to get anywhere with it. And why is that? It's because the watch is a super important uh, fashion item as well as a functional item. And Apple is the only company, by Ben Thompson's argument, that can that can put together this hardware product in a way that people would actually want to wear. Mm. So with this focus on luxury materials, uh, the beauty of it, uh, the, the, the vast choices that you have, uh, that's totally intentional on their part because it's, it's going to be the argument that will get the mainstream to choose that and to put it on their wrist and to wear it all day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, whereas a, a, a Galaxy Gear watch or a, a Motorola, what the 360, whatever that hell thing is called, um, pe- normal people are not going to wear those watches. Full stop. It's never going to happen, right? Right. Right. So uh, Ben Thompson is saying, even though we like people like us, right, nerds, <laughs> uh, the people that follow Apple that that pay attention very closely to what they're doing, we dismiss this whole fashion thing, right? This is that's not important. That's not what matters. What matters is what the thing actually does. But we couldn't be more wrong. Like the success of this thing is going to rely on people choosing to wear it as a fashion item. And that's why it's so important that Apple put such a huge focus on the the look and feel of it, the quality of the materials, and to really set it apart from everything else. A typical of Apple products is it's it's going to be a paradigm shifting piece. It's not about telling the time at all. Even even Pebble users who use Pebble will tell you that it's not about it's not about wearing a device on your wrist or or, or anything like that. It's about getting your act, you know. Finding about the weather. It's about getting email notices. It's about getting text message notice, notices. It's about getting Twitter notices, you know, or or not, or turning those all those off if you want. But but it's it's not about wearing a watch per se, as, as in a traditional sense of you know having a timepiece that tells you what the time is, right? Exactly. Yeah. So um, by the time I finished that article, I was I was much more persuaded that Apple was on the right track with this than mm-hmm. than I had been originally, and of course the. I think the biggest argument is that over time, the watches, I expect, will get less expensive and the value proposition will increase as well as developers build software for it that demonstrates its value, right? So I suspect that, I don't know if there's going to be a killer app for the watch, but over time, there are going to be apps that that will resonate with certain niches and build a case for people to buy it from all walks of life. You know, with regard to killer apps, uh, so they mentioned a, a couple in this article about, you know, Siri integration, of course, is going to be critical. Apple mm-hmm. Pay, I think everybody's mm-hmm. kind of interested in. Uber or Lyft type stuff, Passbook for 
airplane stuff, um, unlocking hotel rooms without having to go and grab an extra key from the front desk. Um, one that I noticed on Apple's uh, website, you know, apple.com slash watch and app store apps is uh, one from Target, which, uh, man, this isn't really even like a proud papa moment. This is a proud grandpa moment. But they have something which is something that I want, which is, you know, having my grocery list, being able to add that, you know, in via the phone. And then once I go into an actual target, um, mm-hmm. it not only shows me my list, so I'm not holding out my iPhone 6 Plus and trying to move the grocery cart at the same time, um, but also happens to know my proximity to items and can say, oh, well, this is the next item on your list that's close to you. That's great. I like that. I want that. I'm going to use that app from day one. That's awesome. Actually. Yeah. I can see like just a grocery shopping list app would do very well here in that context. Are are you guys familiar with Simon Sinek and his, uh, his book or videos on Ted series uh, called uh, start with why? No. Anyway, he uses Apple as an example and, and the, I have a lot of faith in, in the in the the Apple Watch and the products that Apple creates because people don't buy Apple products and we talked about this before. You know, we talk about the fact that it's a lifestyle product and, and it's not about telling time. It's not about going to Starbucks and waving your wrist and getting a free coffee or, or paying for a coffee or that kind of stuff. You know, people people buy Apple stuff because why Apple makes the products that they make, not the product. I mean, you know, something like like the whole thing about his talk, and I'll put a link to the video uh, on the TED Talk is is about why people buy Apple products. They don't buy Apple products. They don't buy the products because it's a product, because it's a computer by Apple, or because it's a watch by Apple, or because it's a phone by Apple. They buy it because of why Apple makes those products for us. They make them to improve our lifestyles, to extend our lifestyles. The, the price of the watch uh, remains for me a little problematic. And a part of it is Apple's fault. And part of it is the Canadian dollar's fault. So mm. um, let me let me put it. Uh, and Stephen Harper's fault. Let's not. Let's not. Oh, let's no, him I, the I'm, we're at it. I'm so willing to blame Stephen Harper for everything. So that's fine. But let me put it to Jaime and Mark. OK, so. Um, the, the dollar amounts that Apple is advertising for these watches um, are the actual ones that you'll pay, whereas I have to add like 20%. Um, so I'm, I'm really biased, and, and it's hard for me to, to think clearly about the price of these watches. I'll, I'll add as well that I am not hearing uh, through the normal Twitter channels that I inhabit uh, people complaining about the pricing of the watch. I'm hearing a lot of people um, either stating it without comment or emotion uh, or even going so far as to say the prices seem reasonable. There's not much you can do about the value of the of the dollar, right? It'll it'll come down. Right? At some yeah. Point. Nothing. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it sucks, but there's not much you can do. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, th- yeah. yeah. L- let's leave aside yeah. the the conversion rate right now. That's not at all what it, this is about. Like, it really is about U.S. dollar price of the watches. What do you think of them? I think the entry level one is is reasonable. Um, you know, it's it's definitely priced to be a luxury item. It's not meant to be something that everyone's going to have, uh, and they chose to do it that way for whatever reason. But but it is what it is. Uh, so the three hundred fifty dollar range, I think, is not so bad. Um, you know, I would probably not if I were going to buy a watch. I'd probably want the next level up. So yeah, five hundred is starting to get you know 
could be a lot for a watch. I, well, unless you like a high-end watch. Uh, the, you know, obviously the, the $10,000 is, is just kind of silly. Um, the people who are buying those are just buying them because they can. So I don't think it. I don't think it's exorbitant. It's it's high, but it's not exorbitant. But you know that's kind of what you say about every Apple product, right? That is true. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, Jaime? Yeah, um, it is a bit difficult for me to. So thinking to myself, okay, well the model I'm going to buy is four hundred dollars US, and so if we made it, let's say five hundred dollar for that one, what would I feel? I would still get it. Um, it's hard for me to separate out the fact that, you know, I'm a developer. So of course I'm very interested in getting in this and it's kind of an investment in my craft. Um, so teasing that part out, how does it feel? It's like, well, you know, I think I agree with Mark that it's, it's a higher priced item, but it's not outrageous. And I do recall that the iPhone was something like $800, I think when it first came out. So it's not unprecedented that like the V1 uh, first day kind of experience will be, hey, look, if you're an early adopter, you, you pay the price no matter what, right? Things tend to drop in price over time, especially in the technology sector. It feels it to me... It doesn't feel too bad from there. Yeah, okay. I, I think we can... I feel comfortable with the pricing on the sport edition, yeah, <laughs> sport collection. Yeah, I, um, I, I do have more of a problem with the, the Apple Watch collection. Uh, the middle line one, you know, the steel one, where mm -hmm. I think the prices go up pretty dramatically in that line. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the, the sort of people or the number of people that would buy such a watch, I think goes down quite a bit, right? It's kind of weird that you would almost certainly see such a huge tail off in purchasers as you step up to the in, in, in Apple parlance, good, better, best, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> as you get to, when you go to better, the, the number of purchasers drops right off. And they're not using the, the popcorn theory of, of pricing things like ridiculously high to try and put yeah, people up. True. True. It, but you're, you're right. I mean, I, I think that the, I mean, I really, really, how many, how many people, how many millions of, of $20,000 watches are they going to sell really? Well, probably very few. Yeah, so it's kind of it's kind of a strange leap, like you say. I agree with you about that. Like you know, the the moderately priced watches, the entry level watches, are you know for an early adopter a reasonable amount of money. But you know, other than some sort of, I think we, I'm not sure if we talked about this, but whether it being a status symbol that you're wearing a, a more expensive watch, like you can you're the executive, so you got to have the steel watch. You know, you you fly business class or first class, so you have to have that fancy watch to show your station in life. You know, and then you know you're you're Kanye West, so you got to have the gold watch as you accept your Academy Award, you know, kind of thing, right? Yeah, but that's you know, both those examples are an They're incredibly stratified, sure. yeah, like stratified yeah. group of people that have nothing mm -hmm. to do with the masses that have given Apple the success they've had today. So, you know, I, I'm just this just reflecting again on what we said last week, or what I said last week that um, that it's a very different approach to the market, and it's concerning to me. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of Apple Sport watches. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But uh, not not much of the steel, and certainly uh, very rare would you find an edition watch out in the public. Well, we were speculating a lot of people like the aluminum or the Sport watch. That's a lower one, right? Yeah. Um, and But they would want to get, like, a better band. I mean, there was a lot of discussion amongst the people I was chatting with about it that, that 
you know, they were they were sort of saying, well, what comes in the box? And then, you know, would you get the mill? A lot of the people like the Milanese loop, the ones that people I was talking to. And, um, you know, they, they kind of would gravitate, gravitate towards that. But, I mean, you look at the, like, the pricing, again, it's, 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 it's going to be expensive. I mean, you know, as a developer, sure, you're going to get a watch. You know, you're not, you really don't need to go beyond the sport watch if you're a developer, right? So... But you know what? It's 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 until we actually get them in the wild that we can experience them and find out how much they change our life. That's that's what's going to really sort of sell this product over time, right? Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. initially, you know, I, I remember when the iPhone came out. And I was down in San Francisco, wandering around and wondering why everybody didn't have an didn't didn't have an iPhone in two thousand and eight, you know, and, and two thousand nine. Um, and then you know now if I go down there, they're 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 everywhere, right? And the same thing with the iPad. You know, when the iPad first came, I was an early adopter on the iPad. I, I Right from day one, I knew that was something I was going to have, right? Um, developer or not, and um, you know, I I was surprised that you you didn't see them around. And but now, you know, you you go to you know restaurants or whatever, you see people walking around with their iPads, you know, in bars, you know, uh, after hockey, you see guys, you know, one or two people will have an even. I saw a first generation iPad the other day, which I, in a bar, which I thought was kind of funny, but still, you know, <laughs> you know, the fact that the fact that people are still using them, they're going online, they're checking their email, you know, whatever it is they're doing with these devices. Right. Um, but so it's going to take time. I think for the, the watch, I think the 1.0 watch is going to take a little bit of time to sort of get out into the market. But I think by the two, time the 2.0 or the 3.0 come out, um, It'll be interesting. I, I was kind of wondering too. Like, do you think that? I mean, with uh, I suppose it's because of the cell connection. But you know, our our carriers up here, Rogers and Bell, you can actually get a subsidized iPad because of the because of the LTE um, connectivity, right? I wonder if somebody's going to have um, some sort of uh, watch kit or watch purchase program where you can get one at a, at a reduced rate, like we do with our phones, right? Like, I mean. I know you guys. I think Aaron, you buy your phone outright, don't you? I my phone six uh, is outright. But. Yeah, so I, I still go. Th- I'm still. With, you know, I, I have no intention of moving away from Rogers. So if they want to sub, and I pay an exorbitant amount of a minutes per month, so I'm, I'm not about to. Uh, if they want to subsidize my subsidize my watch or my sorry my phone, that's great. But if they had the ability to subsidize, subsidize a watch, I might I might be willing to get into the program that way as well. So well, they might be able to do that as part of a phone package, right? Yeah, because, yeah. you know they do that That's today true. with Samsung. Like you can get a Galaxy S something phone with, and they'll throw right. in the Galaxy Gear watch. Right, right, but right. I don't I don't know. I don't think I can see that happening in this case. I mean, well, like I said, it depends again. It depends on what happens when it gets out into the wild. If it becomes a, a, a product of ubiquity with. A function where you know it does go hand in hand with the watch. Uh, I'm sorry, with the phone. Pardon my pun, um, but it does go uh, together as as a as a companion product. I mean, you can't have a watch without a phone, right? Um, so it kind of it, it may get bundled in some place, some places, right? It's an interesting idea. Maybe mm-hmm. we should try to start thinking of ways that uh, that the you know things that the, the subscri- subscription type services that the watch would enable that. That otherwise yeah. wouldn't make any sense, and and uh, maybe it's a good idea for a startup. Well, I don't know if you heard Mark earlier, but um, you might have been while you were disconnected or before yeah. you joined us. That I, I'd actually um, 
saw a service where people were were uh, offering to lend out watches. Mm. You know, with 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 the thing, if you liked it, you could use it as a as a part of your payment towards buying it. You know, mm. and I think it mm-hmm. was like fifty dollars a month or something to try it out. Right. So, right. 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 And that Shall might be a, that may be a way for people to start up a service to do that kind of thing. Right. So to, right. to start a, a wear it and share it kind of thing. You know. Right. But the reason it works so well with the with the phone subsidies is, of course, you're, you're paying the carrier every month, and yeah. uh, they're more yeah. than making their money back. Um, so, but yeah. but it's uh, I can't think of anything offhand. But it would be interesting to think about: is there a similar type of thing for the that we could come up with for the watch, right? Where mm-hmm. where there is some service that the watch enables Uber. That... <laughs> and then there was a MacBook that came out. That was huge. I I thought, <laughs> pun intended. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful looking piece of hardware. Yeah, um, and I love that they've returned to MacBook. I think that's Apple's way of saying that this is the new standard. Mm-hmm. That um, all notebooks are going to look like this going forward. Mm-hmm. It's to me, it's the iPadification of the Mac product line. Definitely, yeah. Um, one of the one of the things that I haven't seen a lot of people talk about is the fact that with the one port, you're a lot of people might say, "Well, how am I supposed to charge it?" and oh, you know, or keep it plugged in while I'm working on it, and you don't do that, right? Yeah, like an iPad, yeah. you you charge it overnight, and then you unplug it in the morning, and you just take it around with you and use it all day. Right. Right? And then you plug it in at night. And Apple is saying that you can do that with your MacBook. Yeah. Well, especially with the with the battery. They've just, just stuffed it with battery, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the inside of that case is hilarious. Yeah. Nook and cranny, yeah. Yeah. But you could, you could see that they've been heading in that direction for a long time. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if I could throw in, I mean, my my daily my Mac of choice daily is a MacBook Air, and you know, so right now it's plugged in and, and charging, but in a couple of hours, I'll you know I'll, I'll unplug it and sit on the couch and work for another three or four hours until the battery starts complaining again. I mean, so yeah, I mean, I I would te- I would prefer to work on tethered as it is, right? The one complaint I have about, and, and obviously it's clear to me and probably to you guys too, that, that the, the current MacBook that they're talking about coming out on, in a couple of weeks is definitely not a developer machine per se because of, yeah. the, because of the one port integration. It, so, so it's more, and because the MacBook Air is still there, which I think people were surprised by as a product. And then the Mac Pro, of course, or the Mac, what do we call them? MacBook, MacBook Pro. Pro. <laughs> MacBook Pro. Yeah. They're still out there as, as you know, the 13 and the, and the 15 inch, right? Um, so yeah, I think it's it's interesting to see from the point of view of the technology that's gone into it. I mean, like the logic board is smaller, almost as small as Arduino board, right? Of course, the wonderful screen. Like you know, I spe- I, I was skeptical about that last week, but there you go. You, I was proved wrong by them, right? It's a beautiful screen. Yeah, mm-hmm. waiting for that for a long time. I, I I liken this to the original MacBook Air, which was a little pricey and um, made it a very difficult transition for people. But as you know, of course, it it in, it was enhanced over the years and faster processors, better RAM, um, you know, uh, backlit keyboard, even you know, um, things like that. With this uh, this new MacBook, I think it's a tough choice for someone like us to make who who look for more power in a laptop. And you can see like the CPUs they put in there are actually slower than the one that's sitting in my my two-and-a-half-year-old MacBook Pro right oh, now. Really, eh? Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. And um, I think uh, <laughs> uh, Intel still has some work to do, I think, in terms of CPUs as they come out with new ones. Like, the they, they updated the uh, the Airs and the MacBook Pros at the same time 
uh, at the event yesterday, and those those have been benchmarked, and they are not significantly faster than the year ago models. Um, so concerning, but um, still, in terms of in terms of portability and and that, I, I don't think you can you can overstate how important it is that a computer be completely disconnected from any any wires. It's it's a totally untethered computing experience, just like the iPad is. And I think a lot of people are going to, you know, casual computer users. We're not talking about people like us, but but like everybody but us, <laughs> you know, um, business users, uh, anybody that just, you know, that says, you know, I, I'm just going to browse the web and do email and that sort of mm-hmm. thing, you know, Facebook. Mm-hmm. This yep. is the perfect machine for them. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be so good. It makes this, me wish that the, I had that kind of need. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a perfect machine for a cross-country plane flight, without a doubt. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I can't wait to see them in the store. I'm looking forward to that. It's kind of funny. If you think back to when the iMac first came out and the whole uh, advertising campaign was about it was only one plug, one thing to plug in. Yeah. Right. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And now we're down to zero things to plug in. It's great. That's right. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, obviously it's the way things are going. Uh, I'm not going to make any stink about the single port. I don't think it. <laughs> uh, you're going to get very far doing that because Apple again and again and again over their history has shown that they uh, they know. They're holding it wrong, yeah. <laughs> they know what they're doing, and, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're just being shown the future here as usual. Though I always wonder, you know, why couldn't they just put another USB-C yeah. port? One more, just one more. That side, killed yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Anyway, that's Apple. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, good event, really good event. Um, are we going to talk at all about uh, Research Kit? So I didn't watch the entire event. I just watched the 11 minutes um, oh, summary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, did you? I mean, because <laughs> I just haven't had time. This is why I didn't contribute much to the list. 11 minutes? Week. Isn't there one that's like three minutes where they chop all this shit out? Yeah, but that's that's too much, right? It's like The Verge usually has a, the 11 minute version, which is a little bit more uh, detailed. Yeah, um, and research kit seems like one of those things that's you know possibly great for humanity in general. Oh but yeah, no, very yeah, uninteresting yeah, yeah. for the average indie developer. Yeah, unless that indie developer can somehow get work building a research kit app. You know, you know that's what I was wondering. Like, I didn't yeah. understand. Like, I mean, I know part of it's open source, and it's unclear to me what part that will be. Yeah, and research kit know... itself is a is a framework, right? I think it's a like an SDK. I don't really have a full grasp over what exactly it is. Yeah, but, I, I was a little unclear in that. I said, okay, well, are people going to be contracted, or is it pretty much just going to be, you know, has to be academia? So Yale University or John Hopkins or something are going to have to create yeah, their own stuff. Exactly. Uh, it just wasn't clear. Oh, you don't think we'll, you don't think we'll have access to? Well, or we will have access I think they to got. It, we won't have a need for it. Or research kit will be available to developers next month. If you're a researcher interested in learning more about how apps created with research kit could benefit your work, please contact us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to go to developerapple.com/slash/researchkit here. Yeah, there's a there's a whole lot of um, articles on it as well. So I guess what I'm hearing ah. from a from an indie developer standpoint, it's more you know another potential avenue to drive consulting gigs yeah thousands, thousands have signed up for research kit already on um bloomberg hmm well how's that possible what can you sign up for <laughs> there's nothing to sign up for yeah. it's just like the the call to action Eleven thousand people had signed up on thir- on tuesday morning for on what for what 
like, like as users? Not, you know? Because there, there there is a featured category. For a cardiovascular study using Apple. Oh, yes. So the existing apps that have been uh, uh, published. Oh, yes. Yeah. I'm talking yeah. about like yeah. research kit for developers. The call to action is coming next month. Um, so you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Here's what it says. It says um, easily create visual consent flows, real-time dynamic active tasks, and surveys using a variety of customizable modules that you can build upon and share with the community. Um, and it works seamlessly with HealthKit, so you can access all the HealthKit data as well as part of the research mm-hmm. kit. Mm-hmm. So seems like like research kit is a is a set of UI components. Possibly. Yeah. Well, that's that's basically what it says, you know. I think that I think like like the lady said in the in the keynote was um, they don't get nearly enough f- input from people. Yeah. On this kind of stuff, right? And, and people can opt into like from what I gathered from it uh, as a consumer, you can uh, you can find out about an app like the guy mentioned on the on the keynote, um, and you can opt into these studies. Right. Um, obviously, and you know, and, and get this gets to tie in between privacy and health kit as well, right? So yeah, there's that was the first thing, the first red flag that went up for me when I heard about it was was privacy. But well, I think Apple's got that covered, right? So yeah, they have yeah. like a number of modules built in here. It's surveys, so UI components for building building uh, surveys and Q and A type things, mm-hmm. uh, which is also localizable. An informed consent module. Right. All right. So using the language and, and policies that, that the medical people need for a particular thing to get consent from the user and mm-hmm. active tasks, which is a series of actions that can be taken and sensors that can be used. Um, so right. it taps into the various sensors and provides information data on, on how they're being used. So they have a bunch of categories here, like motor activities gate and tapping on the screen. They demonstrated those in the video. Uh, hmm. Fitness using the accelerometer and providing data on your walking, right? Uh, cognition, spatial memory using touching of the screen, voice, phonation using the microphone. Um, and it, I guess the framework uh, sends back packaged data that you can readily consume in your app. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's very interesting. It's like... Um, it's probably just a good start, I think. I would imagine that over time that they're going to expand this to, to have more capabilities, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I like that their their prefix is ORK. <laughs> I don't know why. Research kit. O research kit task. Hmm. Orc, hmm. orc task. Orc step controller. Mm, <laughs> open, perhaps? Open, open yeah. Because it's going to be open yeah, source? Yeah, that's maybe. the only thing I could think of. Yeah. Oh, this is, this is the actual class? Yeah, that's or? an actual class name. So there's an orc task. An orc step view controller, an orc hmm. task result. Uh, these are the main hmm. components of a research kit object right. or a set right. of objects. So, um, very interesting, very interesting. And obviously, like it's it's <laughs> when I say it's very interesting, I mean it's it's a compelling direction for Apple to take that is meaningful for a lot of people and hopefully will advance medical research, which already is very slow right we know that <laughs> um yeah so it was exactly yeah we talk about it as a benefit to humanity um but it's not going to impact a lot of indie developers like people that listen to this podcast probably aren't going to have their lives changed by this anytime soon at least so well unless like you said they're participating in building an app or something like that, exactly right? so. yeah yes mm-hmm. so i mean do people do people get paid to do medical research in the states i mean like uh, um 
Like I, I've heard people can you know donate blood and get paid for it in the states. Does that kind of stuff happen down there, or do you know? Yeah, I don't know if it's. Um, I'm sure there must be some sort of rules around it. I think it's it's sort of like here when you do jury duty, you get paid for your time, but it's like ten dollars a day or something nominal. Oh, really? Yeah. Like I, I, I remember it, when I was at university that I took part in a couple of ones. I, I can't remember what the medical one was, but the the psychological one when we got the psychology department was like five dollars, I think. Hmm. It's an well, honorarium. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I guess. I just you know because you, you I mean you hear about it in sitcoms and stuff like that all the time, but in movie th- movie plots and stuff. But I don't think it. I was just curious as to whether that's a motivating motivating factor for why people would uh, do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, okay, so let's wrap it up and go around the table like we usually do, and we'll see if anybody has any picks, and we'll go to Mark this time for a pick. My pick is an app called Magisto, M-A-G-I-S-T-O. And -hmm. what this thing does is you go into your camera roll, and you select a whole bunch of both photos and videos, and you just choose whatever ones you want. And then you choose a a background theme and, and and a background soundtrack, and it goes off and hmm. analyzes the video and the photos, uh, chops it up, and makes a montage video out of it. Mm-hmm. And it does it really well. It balances all the levels. It, it you know it, it clears up the colors and the and the and the lighting, so it's all kind of nice and balanced. Um, it it's able to you know it does all sorts of like picking out the people's faces and it'll zoom into the faces and things like that all as part of this montage that it builds you. And, uh, and so, you, you know, you set, you set it off doing it and it'll send, it sends you a push notification when it's done and you go back in and, and there you have this video. It's, it's pretty cool to play with. It's amazing what they came up with. Hmm. So it's called Magisto, M-A-G-I-S-T-O. And that's an iOS app? It is an iOS app. Yep. Oh, yep. Camera roll, you mentioned that. Yep. Yep. Cool. All right, uh, Aaron, do you have a pick? Yes, yes, I do. Uh, it is very simple, actually. It was just something I saw today uh, as we've been talking about Apple Watch. And um, one of the things we have to do, of course, is choose the size that we want. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Apple's, um, uh, the App Store, Apple Store app, rather, has the sizes of the watches, like in, in 100% size that you can like have on the screen of your iPhone, and you can lay the iPhone on your wrist and sort of get a sense of how big the phone right. uh, the, the watch is going to be. Right. Um, but I saw today someone had uh, uh, published a PDF that you can print off at 100% and then cut out these watch shapes, including hmm. the wristbands. And the, so it comes with every watch face uh, for each collection of watch, as well as each uh, wristband size. Um, so it's a four page document and the fourth page has the sport watches. And so I just printed page four, uh, mm. because let's face it. Um, so I was able to cut those out and put them on my wrist and kind of get a sense of, you know, how, how each watch would fit on my wrist. And, uh, it was very valuable because when I saw the 38 millimeter watch, I have a fairly small wrist. So I put the 38 millimeter watch on my wrist from the phone and I thought, Hey, that's actually a really good size. But mm. when I put the paper version on my wrist with the band uh it seemed too small whereas the 42 right. seemed just right and so it gave me a different impression than i previously had and so 
if anyone else is curious about uh, which watch size they might look for, uh, this PDF, which is in the show notes, will give you some ideas. Well, so that's the thing, a question I have is, I mean, if, if it's only $50 more to buy the watch, why wouldn't you, or sorry, the 42, why wouldn't you just buy the 42? Oh, well, right. yeah, obviously it's a factor in the decision-making, right? Yeah, But yeah. like there was a point in time where I was looking at the 38 and actually thinking that was a better size for my wrist. Really? Oh, I yeah, see. That's okay. never mind mm. the price. Yeah. I mean, and you know, again, I hate to harp on it, but yeah, I, I mean, I've seen them because of the printer, but um, I really don't see much difference in size myself. I mean, I know it is technically smaller, but you know. For for $50, that much, you know. A four couple, millimeters. Four millimeters. For <laughs> That's like, what is that, uh, $12 a millimeter? Yeah, it's crazy. Yep, yep. Okay, my pick is colorsafe.co. Um, <laughs> the essential idea about this is if everybody remembers web safe colors way back in the day, you could oh, yeah. choose from this particular right. palette, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. And, and you could be guaranteed that the browsers would support it. <laughs> yeah. This is kind of like that. But it's meant to be uh, a way to handle accessible colors. So people out there with varying degrees of uh, color blindness, mm-hmm. um, if you're trying to pick out a particular shade of a color that you want to add into your screen, um, using something like this might be helpful. So instead of just picking based on what you as a, you know, somebody who's not colorblind can see, mm-hmm. Just reconsidering, oh, okay, well, it turns out that that will not be distinguishable for folks who have color blindness. So it, it's nice that it generates a color palette, right? So you can put in text and say, okay, mm. well, okay, uh, this green looks acceptable to me, and it gives you the hex value for that. So it's a pretty simple kind of tool that I think if you're having any sort of you know, accessibility concerns or you really, really can't you know, end that one argument over what color this button should be, this could be a little bit of uh, ammunition for your, you know, in your pocket. You got ammunition in your pocket, eh? Ammunition, you know, you never know. You got to carry around those <laughs> shotgun shells, man. You just got to <laughs> be ready to bust out. Zombie apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tim, what's your pick? All right, my pick. Well, I actually had a couple, but but the one I'm going to go with, and again, it has to do with with uh, we're advising a young developer who was trying to get his first app out, and um, so w- one of the tools we looked at was, um, and again, it comes to how do we market our apps and stuff like that. I mean, I've done screenshots of my app and um, gone in and just taken you know shots from the app and just literally put them on the store, and you know my app has. You know some some success, but I've noticed that a lot of people in in the app store now that you can use the phone and the device, they do sort of like a little marketing page for each screenshot instead of just the shot of the app itself. So there's a tool called um, from a launch kit called, and they have a number of tools for app developers to build things for their assets for their marketing. But one of them is called Launch Kit Screenshot Builder, and what you do is you go into this. It's an online thing, and I think it's. Um, I think it's just launching, so it's a, like a beta program right now. Uh, so it's it's kind of free to try it out, and, I, and so I and just to experiment. We were talking about experimenting with our app pricing and our app marketing a couple of weeks ago with Mark. Which Mark, have you done anything about the pricing on your app yet? Uh, no, still need to do that. No, it's a matter of speaking of which. <laughs> but anyway, so so uh, I took one of my apps, Device Tracker, and I'm going to put. Uh, so I, and I went in there and I t- took some of the standard screenshots I had in there, and you go in and, and it gives you like an iPhone six uh, shot. 
and you you upload an image and you line it out and it gives you a spot where you can enter text and you can do a background color if you like um, and then you upload your pictures and rather than you know having to have a big marketing sort of spin on things you can build your own screenshots and then what it does when it's finished is it sends you an email uh, like you know a few minutes later after they crank through and generate all the screenshots for all the phones you need based on the one shot right for one set of shots, right? But anyway, my, my, my thing is LaunchKit uh, Screenshot Builder, and I'm gonna, I've, like I said, I've done the screenshots this week. I just haven't got around to uh, uploading to iTunes Connect. I think iTunes Connect has been down all day, so I've not been able to do that, but we'll get around to that. Fantastic. It's back now, by the way. Um, <laughs> oh, is it? Okay, good. Yeah. For sure. Uh, for so sure. find me on the web, Aaron Vay, on Twitter. And Jaime, where can people find you? On Twitter, at Dev of the Hair. And Mark, where can people find you? Mark R at smapsoft.com. And I am, of course, Tim Mitra on Twitter, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A. And you can also reach all four of us through the podcast um, Twitter account, M-T-J-C underscore podcast. And so this time we'll say goodbye. 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 Bye. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items we talked about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website, or if you can, please write a review on iTunes. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow us on Twitter. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast if you'd like to support us you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc you can provide as little as a dollar amount any amount helps however you're free to do as you please thanks again for listening But I also just posted a, a counter argument to that. Oh, really? Where? Where? Yeah. Is that yeah, the Forbes? Who, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, weren't we just talking about the Forbes contributor? Yeah, network? no, I, I, I thought it was just perfect, perfect timing I'm since kidding. you were just telling me that this was a piece of crap. Yeah, right? this is the contributor network. Yeah, this is bullshit. I haven't read it yet, but I'll con- I can tell you that right now. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's kind of a sad thing. I used to go to Forbes and get some really mm. good stuff, but now they just kind of let any person be a contributor. Well, I, I'm sure the person who posted it, you know, in, in the forum, you know, I know him quite well, and he's always putting up stuff that, you know, are, is comical to us. Yes. In the, in the know. Well, you know, there's there is Forbes, the editorial, yeah, um, publication, you know, run yes. by yes, of course, run by and yes. and filled with works from professionals, right? And that is not mm-hmm. what this is. This this right. is, um, it's like an arrangement where you. I don't know how you become a contributor to this contributor network. You probably have a pulse. <laughs> Maybe. And uh, the idea is that I think you get paid based on the page views. The page views, oh, really? yes, there, there is some incentive for having higher page views. And that's why mm. all these, you know, put Apple in the headline. That's rule number one for making page views. Right. Um, and so that's what they do. And, and especially writing about why Apple is stupid and failing or doomed. Mm is mm-hmm. a sure way to get page views and that's why so many of those articles show up on Forbes which is why you can't you can't take anything that gets said here with any kind of yeah. and and we're we're perpetuating it right it even says there at the top of the article 17,639 views 
<laughs> you know, so they're they're pretty upfront about it. But wow, yeah, it's ugly. And yet, and yet, a network like Gigom. Did you hear about Gigom yeah. closing yeah. down? Yeah. yeah, So my buddy uh, went to university with Matthew Ingram. So sad about that. Um, sad to see my don't worry, struggling. Matt Ingram will land on his feet elsewhere. Oh, he's yeah, no, he's quite knowledgeable, dude. Yes. It's one of our Canadian resources. Um, yeah. It's so. rather unfortunate for them too. They're an example where you know, oh, Malik left, and then it completely changed the way. Oh, that did site it, was. oh, I didn't realize he was gone. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I mean, there was suddenly no um, you know inside baseball kind of stuff going on. Right. Oh, I see what you there mean. There was no. I mean, they just didn't have like their you know niche anymore. They didn't mm-hmm. like. What did you bring to the table that the thousand other link blogs don't already have? Yeah. Yeah. Tough to compete hmm. like that. Hmm. Anywho, okay, I'm just going to get my stuff off the printer. We'll be right back. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> what is uh, all, Oh my god, page two. What the hell's going on here? Holy I cow. don't know. Tim put like a whole bit of prose here. Yeah. Oh, is this a. It's a. An excerpt from. Okay. There's a whole, yeah, a whole bit on app code. Uh, I see. Marin I... or Marin Todorov's quote is great. Yeah. Which, yeah. Oh, and, oh there's stuff on oh, the stuff I put Did this there? come from the RayWenderlich.com chat group? Yeah, I wanted to know because uh, um, um, I know that we, we've got a couple of app code users, even though Greg didn't think we did, right? Yeah. Um, so I asked him, I said, hey, listen, we're, we just talked about this, and can you guys give me some, some fodder for the follow-up, right? So James Frost and uh, Rich Turleson are, are fanboys of, of app code, so they give us a whole bunch of uh, points about why, it's, why they think it's cool. And actually, um, Rich just sent me a picture of uh, the console output, that you get in app code and it's it's all color coded and it's all you know instead of having to go into each each uh, object and do a PO statement on it like pause your pause your app and go in and do any fancy stuff it actually tells you in the screenshot I should, show, I should put it on the chat if I can it shows you what uh, what's going on in your app which would be super handy for most people I would think I guess you didn't see the app code uh, demo at Taco. Uh, he did. He did a demo of two JetBrains products. Uh, one was I can't remember what the other one was though. It was AppCode okay. and um, something else. <laughs> um, yeah. And ironically, he oh. really liked the other thing, but not AppCode. And um, oh, I didn't like it. No. Eh? And uh, given his demonstration, I could see why it was. You still need Xcode. You can't use AppCode by itself. That's that's right. problem number one right there. It's mm. still – it's never going to catch up to Xcode in support for certain features, right? Right, um, right. You know, like auto layout, right? Size classes. Um, you know, that that requires support inside an interface builder, right? And that just they, – they just they just completed an implementation of interface builder inside AppCode. Like, and the product has been out oh, for years. You and, yeah, and you yeah. haven't been able to use that, like um, – and so basically you've had, you've had to have Xcode open at the same time as – as app code mm-hmm. and it turns the development process into some, you know, a much more cumbersome affair, right? Because you, you're kind of having to move back and forth between them in a way that's actually pretty arbitrary based on how they built app right. code. Right. Right. Um, and it looked, and, and <laughs> you know, I'm a Mac user, right? So I get to say this, uh, it's ugly. <laughs> 
Well, it's written in Java. That's yeah, it's what, a Java app. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, JetBrains. All of their stuff is Java. Everything. Hmm. Um, and I, I cannot stand Java applications. So right off the top, it's done over. I'm never going to use it. So um, <laughs> I don't know. That's just all there is to it. And uh, you know, call me a snob because I am. <laughs> but you know. So how do you really feel? About oh, it? come on, Tim. I'm being polite here, honestly. <laughs> you don't want the uh, uncensored version of what I think. Okay. Just... You know, each one of us has something to contribute to this podcast, and I feel like maybe that's your domain. <laughs> we let you do that part. Which is what? What slagging Java apps? <laughs> slagging stuff in general. <laughs> mm. <laughs> okay. That's the sort of thing that gets me into trouble. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the the quote from Marin is pretty good though. Yeah, yeah, I like that one. Well, especially it's it's uh, relevant to. It, he's obviously he's obviously addressing me because uh, there's a lot of jokes about moose and when we talk about Canada on, on, on the Slack. So, but apparently somebody set this guy, and I'll find his name in a minute. Said something in the Guardian about the watch, and I think to the fact that this is not a product Steve Jobs would have made. Ah, classic. Classic argument against Apple. They're doomed. Haunted Empire. Yeah, yeah. So here it is. Okay. Yeah, in this case, like, it already is an unethical article to begin with. So just just reading the Loop Insight one, right? So Martin McNulty, right, was the one who wrote the article, is chief executive Mm -hmm. of Forward 3D and Locaria, which are marketing agencies that represent Gucci... You know, Ulysses Narden, like all these companies that offer high-end luxury watches, might be kind of nice to disclose that sort of thing. Nah, mm-hmm. yeah, look at if this. If you're bitching Dirty. about a 10k watch, right? <laughs> wow. Oh wait, hang on a second here. I'm just looking at the article. Do you see that it's not actually an art, a Guardian article? It's uh, part of their media network. Mm-hmm. So it's like a, basically a third-party editorial space. Hmm. So it's this is not like an ed, um, you know a, a journalist writing. This is just right, right. You know, oh, just an opinion piece. Yeah, or? yeah. Well, it's obviously an opinion piece. I mean, look at the headline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what is the sorry? What is the headline? I didn't see it. Uh, goodbye, Apple fanboy. Colon, how the watchmaker alienated its audience. But really? yes, um, this this article is under the rubric of something that the Guardian calls. Media network, organic marketing, mm-hmm. which I take to be sort of a paid post type of, uh, like an advertorial kind exactly of thing, like that. Uh, you know, like um, you know Forbes's contributor network. Yeah, this is what that's like. Right. So, like, just anybody can get an article published in on this site. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. It looks like the. You see at the very bottom, this article was amended on 11 March to disclose that the companies for which the author is chief executive president, excuse me, chief executive represent luxury watch manufacturers. Yeah, they are so above board here. Yeah, after Dalrymple (laughs) tore them a new one. Yeah. Surprise, surprise, they're doing the ethical thing, so. Well, The Guardian is a a good newspaper, so they should should have standards. Uh, And uh, while this is posted in a a section of the site that is clearly delineated from the editorial section. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you really got to know what you're talking about to understand that difference. 
where, where does the Guardian fit into like the the pantheon of British papers? It's a British paper, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of the top. It's it's like uh, like I mean, in, it's in, like the New York Times or the Globe and Mail. Okay, so yeah. it's, it's like yeah, our, our Globe and Mail is our national serious paper, not our national rag or right. whatever. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, quite. Hmm. So it, it's actually a little shameful that they have a section like this, in my opinion. Because otherwise, The Guardian is an excellent, excellent newspaper. You know, you can read it all the time and get a, a good perspective on, especially international news. Sure. You know, um, they've they've been the ones they they led the break of the uh, the Ed Snowden series of articles, right? Mm-hmm. So, Grant mm-hmm. Green, Greenwald uh, used to work for The Guardian uh, at the time mm-hmm. that that story broke. So, anyway, cool. um, yeah. So right. yeah. So obviously, it was it was. Like shooting fish in a barrel, basically, for Jim Dalrymple, eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, and it was back and forth about, you know, the the, the guy was, whoever, the, he was arguing, the Minolte guy was arguing sort of a bunch of red herrings, and Jim called them on every single one. Okay. Right? So. And, but he was fighting back. Is that the point here? <laughs> it's like. Uh, well, I don't think he knew he was who he was fighting with. But McNulty was talking way. back at him, defending himself. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he was defending himself. He wasn't like the, I think Jim's point was that you know he asked him a couple of pointed questions, um, like how do you know what, G, uh, what Steve Jobs would have would have done if he was running the company? Okay, um, you know, and uh, the other guy had no argument and kept throwing you know like red herrings, and, and then it ended with him sort of saying, well, "What do you think about the Christ or the Christie? What's her name? The yeah, I know who you're talking about, but I don't remember her name." Yeah, yeah, her. What, what do you think about her being on the st- on the stage? Is that a Steve move or a Tim move? And uh, that's when Dim- Dalrymple realized he was wasn't playing with a wasn't 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 a fair fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't poke the bear. Don't poke.